1: June 2014, there were some some images of areas of the desert being bulldozed and it was said that this is Sykes-Picot being literally being being torn up.
2: That was Katrina Pennell discussing the legacy of the Sykes-Picot Agreement.
3: He feels, I think, that the Mediterranean is a place where one can go and write one's own story, that it's a place where rather than being the victim of the gossip and the insinuations of others, you can actually... You know, uh, seize your life by the scruff of the neck.
2: And that was Joe Muschenska on the exploits of the 17th century explorer Sir Canelm Digby. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals... At HistoryExtra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo, and Zinio. Look out for us in your App Store or Newsstand, or find out more at HistoryExtra.com forward slash digital. Hello, and welcome to our first podcast of May 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. A hundred years ago this month, the Sykes-Picot Agreement was made between Britain and France. The secret deal, which occurred in the middle of the First World War, laid out a plan for the dismembering of the Ottoman Empire's territories in the Middle East. It was controversial then, and remains so today, as some see it as being responsible for the modern troubles in this region. Dr. Katrina Pennell is a historian based at the University of Exeter, who specialises in the First World War and imperialism in the Middle East. I spoke to her down the line a little while back, and I began by asking her to explain what the situation was in the war at the time that this agreement was made.
1: The negotiations of the Sykes-Picot agreement began in November 1915 and went on and on until March 1916. The agreement itself was signed in mid-May 1916. Now, this is, uh, as we know, with the luxury of hindsight, this is sort of the halfway point of the war, really. It's 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 the moment in the war where things are getting extremely tough. The, the battles on the Western Front, the very famous battles uh, such as, as Verdun are raging. The Battle of the Somme. Is, is, in its, is in its final planning stages and the bombardment um, of the German lines will begin the following month. It's been a really difficult couple of years. And so this is the context within which you need to think about the Sykes-Picot Agreement, why the British are thinking about territories well beyond Europe
2: why were they looking at this at this time? Because as you say, they obviously had their hands full in various other theatres.
1: You've got to take a, a long view, as as with any historical uh, event, you, you, you need to be thinking about the, the longer context. And it really stems back to a, a longer relationship with the Ottoman Empire, perhaps most commonly known as the, the Eastern question. And this is a question that has been raging in the minds of, of European imperialists for, for much of the 1800s and, and early 1900s. What is going to happen to the Ottoman Empire when it eventually collapses. There was this preconceived notion that the Ottoman Empire was was in decline. It was the sick man of Europe. That was the famous phrase. Now, if you look into it in more detail, it's much more complex than that. It was a a much more convenient perception for the European powers to have of this inevitable decline. The reality um, in in 1915 at, at Gallipoli had shown that the Ottomans were actually an extremely strong fighting force. So that had come as something of a surprise. To the uh, allies in particular, but certainly you, you need to think about this context of the Eastern Question: What's going to happen to the Ottoman Empire when it collapses? Who's going to get which piece of the pie? And in particular, Britain and France, who of course were fighting on the same side in the First World War, they were part of the Triple Entente with with Russia as well. They had their eye on the Ottoman Empire, um, particularly the North African areas. Now, Britain and France had had come to blows almost in 1898 at the uh, Fashoda incident um, at, the, at the head of the River Nile, which had been resolved eventually through diplomatic means. But it was, a, it was a pretty close call in terms of outbreak of conflict between Britain and France. Now, in the context of the First World War, they are allies. British Prime Minister Asquith, who at the period of, of May 1916 is recovering from a nervous breakdown, is extremely keen not to let uh, relationships with France deteriorate. So they're looking at the Ottoman Empire and Britain in particular are thinking, well, how can we appease France and Russia to some extent? How can we appease them and make sure that they're happy with the deal that we intend to construct in the remaining territories of the Ottoman Empire if slash when we're victorious at the end of the First World War?
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about the individuals involved in, in drawing up this agreement?
1: Okay, yes. Yeah, so, it's Mark Sykes um, is on the on the British side and François-Georges Picot on the French side. Now, both of these men, I think you could describe as uh, empire men. They are uh, well-travelled. Mark Sykes, in particular, had, had a, a long-standing relationship with the area that we would now know as the Middle East. He was a bit of an Arabophile, if you like. And both of these men had had a relationship with the territories in in the ottoman empire and felt best placed to be the diplomatic negotiators on the ground to come up with this particular deal so it really is i mean the sykes picot agreement its official name is the asia minor agreement because the territories involved were, were designated as asia minor but it's it's most commonly known as the sykes picot agreement because of these two individuals that that really put pen to paper if you like and 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 drew up the deal that would eventually be a agreed in May 1916.
2: And so what were the the most important terms of this deal?
1: Well, essentially, and it's worth bearing in mind that this 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 deal was secret. It was a secret agreement between Britain and France. Uh, Russia, the the tsarist government, was aware of what was going on. Of course, Russia had a very deep interest in what was to become of the Ottoman Empire. In particular, they had a deep interest in in uh, access to the Black Sea through through the straits. There had already been an agreement in March 1915, the Constantinople Agreement, uh, which was in a similar way an attempt to appease. Russia and say, look, you you will get the bits of the Ottoman Empire that you want when this war is over. Just you know, stick with us and keep keep going with the fight, and you'll get what you want. But essentially, Sykes-Picot is is about Britain appeasing France. Although, as I say, Russia knows what's going on and is and is giving its approval. What the agreement um, actually does is essentially define proposed spheres of influence in what we would now recognize as the arab areas of the of the ottoman empire so essentially it was looking at a map and it was dividing up into zones a and zones b who was going to get what in the aftermath of the war there was also discussion over uh, what would happen to particular territories that had been discussed in previous negotiations most famously the McMahon Hussein correspondence in in 1915 to 1916 the Hussein McMahon correspondence as i'm sure your 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 listeners are aware was a very significant moment in british arab relations it was it was headed by the the now famous te lawrence lawrence of arabia it was an attempt to get arab rebels within the ottoman empire to support a british uprising a british led uprising in the in the hejaz territory of of the Ottoman Empire. And that's what led to the the Arab revolt of June 1916. The problem with Sykes-Picot is that it contradicted certain elements of the agreements made in the Hussein McMahon correspondence. Of course, it was just correspondence. It wasn't uh, any kind of official treaty over the issue of of an independent Arab state or confederation of Arab states that would be under the authority of an Arab chief the Sykes-Picot agreement did recognize it didn't preclude rule of an of an arab chief in those areas but it it did contradict certain elements of the Hussein McMahon correspondence Actually, the, the the key issue with Sykes-Picot is not actually the agreement itself. It's what happens afterwards, particularly with the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and the Anglo-French Settlement of, of December 1918. Those are significant moments where the Sykes-Picot Agreement begins to evolve and change to a point that 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 really is going to spark controversy between the British and and the the uh, Arabs within the Ottoman territories.
2: So, so you said that the Sykes-Picot agreement contradicted correspondence that had been made with the Arabs about what they were going to receive afterwards. Was it because they weren't aware of that correspondence or they just felt that geopolitical for geopolitical reasons they had to override that?
1: There is various interpretation over this, but Mark Sykes was, you know, he had his finger on the pulse of... Uh, all Anglo-Arab um, matters. You know, he was a very, very, very key figure. So, yes, he would have known about the Hussein McMahon correspondence. He he was in direct uh, contact with Sharif Hussein. So, in, in my mind, there's no doubt that, that he knew about the correspondence, but the geopolitical landscape had changed as such that – Wartime expediency—you know—it was—it was about—it was about, about that the the matters at hand at the time, what would, what needed to be done to win the war and to create a situation that would be most favourable to the British at the end of that war. So seitz picot has to be understood as one of a portfolio of agreements that were made between 1914 and 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 1923 about what the future of the Ottoman Empire and and they evolved as the situation on the ground changed. So no, it, I would say definitely that. That, that Mark Sykes was doing this to do with, with Britain's best interests at heart.
2: You mentioned before about the Balfour Declaration. So what did sykes Pico say about what was then Palestine and to what extent was that then contradicted by the Balfour Declaration?
1: Well, quite simply, the the picot agreement designated a section within the the map um, for an independent Arab state that did um, include what we would now recognise as the the occupied territories and and Israel. The problem with the Balfour Declaration is that that territory was then being handed over to the Jewish people to create their, their homeland. So it was no longer going to be um, a, a territory ruled by the Arabs. It was going to be handed over to, to constitute a, a new national community. Balfour was aware of, of what was being discussed in, in Sykes-Picot. He he was foreign secretary in, by 1917. He had the, the ear of the prime minister. He was very much aware. But of course, the situation, situation by 1917 had changed again um, and and by this stage um, if we're to understand the Balfour Declaration we have to understand again the British government's need to um, appease the Americans, the Jewish community within America as well as the British Zionist uh, community at home. Not least Shane Wiseman who again had direct access to the government because of his expertise in, in chemistry and his development of the smokeless explosive acetone.
2: I understand that these treaties, although it was a secret agreement, it actually did eventually leak out. How did that happen and what was the upshot of that?
1: You're absolutely right. So the the picot agreement was a secret agreement, um, but by November 1917, it had been made public how is the question? Well, quite simply, the Tsarist government in Russia had fallen by this stage. Uh, There had been revolution and the the Bolsheviks were were now in charge. And of course, the Bolsheviks by their their very, you know, political ideology, anti-imperialist, and they saw these wartime secret agreements as, you know, an abhorrent example of what capitalist imperialist um, empires do to uh, pursue an unnecessary and an illegitimate war. So, their way of getting their own back, if you like, of, of, of sort of highlighting the, the weakness of these imperial um, entities was to expose the Sykes-Picot Agreement publicly. And this was done on the 23rd of November in uh, 1917 in, in Russian publications such as Pravda. And then about three days later, um, it was it was made public for the first time in the English language in The Guardian.
2: Once this agreement became publicised, what were the reactions of the various stakeholders? I'd imagine they can't can't have been too pleased about it, certainly, say, the, the Ottoman Empire.
1: No, not at all. I mean, there was a great deal of embarrassment on the part of, of Britain Britain and France that, um, you know, their so-called secret machinations had, had been made public and had been made public by, you know, an entity, the Bolsheviks, that had, had organised for, for Russia a, a leading ally to, to leave the war on the part of the, the, the Triple Entente. So there was a great degree of embarrassment. In in terms of, of the reaction in the Ottoman Empire, I mean, certainly... Those Arab, those key Arab figures such as uh, Sharif Hussein that the, the British had been courting for much of the war, this information came as a, a, as a huge uh, shock and a, and a great deal of, of disappointment. But, of course, by this stage, what you've got to take into account is that the, the secret agreement was leaked three weeks after the publication of the Balfour Declaration on the 2nd of November 1917. So, quite frankly, things had moved on. It was the Balfour Declaration that was at the forefront of, of particularly um, Arab unhappiness. This, this uh, indication that what they believed to have been agreed in 1915, 1916, they'd stuck to their side of the deal. They had revolted. Uh, they had fought against their imperial masters. That had not uh, been met with the promises that they believed they were going to receive. So, so really, it's yes, it's embarrassing, but it's it's not a it's not going to have huge ripples because things have moved on quite significantly with with as I say the publication of the Balfour Declaration.
2: In the end, how close were the terms? How closely were the terms of Sykes-Picot reflected in the eventual post-war settlement of the Ottoman Empire?
1: Well, without getting too uh, deep into it, because you know it is worth remembering that the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916 did did evolve by the time of the of the peace treaties, and as I've said already, the the Anglo-French Agreement of, of December 1918 did more in terms of of laying out the precise lines and where they were going to be drawn. But I think yes, I think Sykes-Picot is a good blueprint to understanding the 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 borders that were eventually cemented through the period of 1918 to 1923, during the, the peace process, the Treaty of Sevre, the Cairo Conference of the 1920s, Sykes-Picot was a document that kept being returned to. And if you look at the lines that, you know, literally the, the, the straight lines drawn by Sykes and his, his colleague Picot, they do reflect very strongly the lines that eventually uh, made up the, the territorial borders of countries that we would now recognise as Iraq and Syria, etc.,
2: you still hear actually quite a lot nowadays. You hear the, the names of Sykes-Picot in relation to the, the current troubles in the Middle East. How much influence do you think the agreement really did have on the situation today? And is it, is it really fair to blame Britain and France for some of the problems today?
1: I think that's a really, really interesting question, um, and I can see it from 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 both sides. Really, I mean, of course, uh, sykes has 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 come back into uh, popular understanding very recently because of ISIS jihadists claiming that they have broken the border of sykes This this was in June 2014. There was some some images of uh, areas of the desert being bulldozed, and it was said that this is Picot being literally being being torn up. So certainly in the rhetoric and the propaganda of the extremist movement of 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 ISIS, Sykes Picot is seen as a as a touchstone, as a as a shorthand way of referring to um, Western double dealing and Western breaking of promises towards the Arab peoples. But then looking at it on the on the other side, well, first of all, ISIS does not represent the vast majority of those people living in those territories. So uh, you know, I think it's really important that we remember that, that that ISIS um, at its very base level is a a movement founded on an ideology that isn't necessarily shared by the vast majority of inhabitants of those territories. Also, I think it's worth bearing in mind, whilst we're seeing the the terrible uh, destruction of places like Syria and Iraq, literally the collapse of these these nation states into the fragmented parts um, based on tribal and sectarian and, and ethnic distinction, it's worth bearing in mind that these states did retain their their sovereign entity for the best part of 100 years. So, the idea that sykes Picot is this is this sort of bomb waiting to go off. Well, it, it lasted for a very long time. So, I think it's more rhetoric than reality. But that said. Perception and rhetoric matters. It is important. And for the vast majority of Arab of people, Sykes-Picot and the other agreements like the Balfour Declaration are seen as directly relevant to the problems that they face in those territories today. So yes, it does matter. But I think we have to be careful um, of giving ISIS too much credit when they say that they're, they're, they're breaking up 100-year-old borders.
2: That was Dr Katrina Pennell. Her most recent book is A Kingdom United, Popular Responses to the Outbreak of the First World War in Britain and Ireland, which was published by OUP in 2012. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor Emma Mason. Marine archaeologists believe they may have located
0: the wreckage of Captain James Cook's ship Endeavour in Rhode Island. The fate of the ship, which set sail in 1768, has remained a mystery, but researchers believe Endeavour was sold into private ownership by the Crown in 1775 and renamed Lord Sandwich. During the Revolutionary War, Lord Sandwich was chartered as a transport vessel by the Royal Navy and eventually served as a prison ship for American loyalists in Newport Harbour, Rhode Island, National Geographic reports. Researchers believe Lord Sandwich is likely to be one of 13 ships scuttled in 1778 by the British Navy in order to blockade a channel during the American War of Independence. Now, after uncovering a new document from the National Archives in the UK, the Rhode Island Marine Archaeology Project has narrowed down the location of Lord Sandwich to within a two-square-mile area of ocean off the coast of Newport Harbour. The marine archaeologists have located and mapped four Revolutionary War-era vessels in this area, and research indicates there may be a fifth wreck as well. The team will now search for the fifth wreck and carry out analysis to confirm whether it is indeed Lord Sandwich. In other news, Lawrence of Arabia's famous white robes and ornate dagger look set to be saved for the nation, UK government sources have told The Independent. A temporary export bar was placed on historic items by the government earlier this year after they were bought at auction by an unknown foreign buyer. Now the arts council says serious expressions of interest have been received. The deferral period has been extended until the first of July to allow time for funds to be raised. An alternative buyer will have to match the asking price of a hundred and twenty two and a half thousand pounds for the dagger and £12,500 for the robes. Lawrence of Arabia is famous for his role in the Arab Revolt of 1916-18 and was immortalised in the 1962 David Lean film. When placing the export bar on the items in February, Culture Minister Ed Vasey called Lawrence, quote, one of the most extraordinary figures of the 20th century.
2: Our second interview this week is with Joe Mashenska. Joe is a historian at the University of Cambridge, and was one of the BBC New Generation Thinkers for 2015. His new book, entitled A Stain in the Blood, is published today, the 5th of May, and tells the story of the 17th century English explorer and diplomat, Sir Kenelm Digby. Our reviews editor, Matt Elton, interviewed Joe not long ago and began by asking him how the idea for this book first came about.
3: Well, I... I started coming across um, Ken Elm Digby in things that I was reading but he was never the focus of anything he was always um, sort of hovering in the margins in this rather fascinating way he had a he he seemed to be a sort of walk-on part in the stories of lots of other more famous people and once I started to look into him in his own right I was I was so attracted by this range of things that he'd done he would crop up when I was reading about the history of literature about the history of philosophy uh, about the history of science about all these areas that seemed so so different and far from one another there was this man with the, with this distinctive name. I thought, well, it must be the same man and once I looked him up, I thought, well, um, he deserves a lot more than this. He deserves not to be a part of lots of other people's stories but to have um, but to have his own story told and And when I started to investigate his life. Um, the part of it that immediately excited and interested me the most was this amazing year that he spent in the Mediterranean in his twenties. Um, and the more I delved into that, the, the the more interested I got, both because it's a fascinating and and rather um swashbuckling story with him fighting this great sea battle and um, visiting Algiers and doing all these amazing things that most people in the seventeenth century didn't do. Um. So that was part of it, but it, it was also that it seemed to me like this was the part of his life where he was trying to make sense of himself, where he was, where he was actually thinking about all his different interests and the different strands of his identity and how they might actually fit together and what, and what it meant for him as a person to, um, to be this, uh, this diverse in his, in his enthusiasms. So it was the combination of those things, the, the, the story and the sense of his, his mind in motion and his mind trying to make sense of itself that really drew me to this story of his voyage.
4: Um, We'll talk about this period in his 20s in a minute, but what do we know of his early life and how far can we
3: see his later character there even? Well, we know we, we know a very unusual amount about his early life, um, in particular because he grew up under this sort of shadow of his um, of his father's treason so it's very rare really to get glimpses into the childhoods of seventeenth century individuals, but because um, when Digby was um, was two and a half years old, his father uh, was really horribly executed um, for his part in the gunpowder plot and so there's a lot of discussion about um, this man everard Digby, his father, who was this um, sort of very physically striking, charismatic, um, handsome, engaging, um, and eloquent figure who had got sucked into this conspiracy um, against his better judgment. And, um, And one of the things that Everard Digby did when he was in the Tower of London awaiting execution was to um, write letters to his infant sons. so to Kenelm, who was two and a half, and his younger brother John, who was even younger, he was only one, to sort of give them a, a, bit, a bit of a sense of him um, after, you know, he, he knew that he was going to die at this point. You know, there is this foundational moment, this sort of great um, trauma and shame that he's always trying to make sense of. Um, and, and from a very early age, from as soon as he starts to become um, sort of intellectually independent, I suppose, um, we can begin to see the ways in which he Responds to this um, to this predicament partly by just uh, b- uh, by reading um, <laughs> fanatically and trying to, um, in a sense, sort of expose himself to the to the widest and most diverse range of ideas um, and uh, and new sort of avenues of thought, um, in part I think to escape the trap of his childhood in part to, to um, so that he's not just his father's son he's not just the son of a traitor um but he's not going to allow himself to be boxed in in that way and have this one fact overshadow his entire life but he's going to expand his mind as much as possible and 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 look for opportunities to become something much more than that mm. so we can trace him being a polymath at this quite early age then Absolutely, yes. I mean it's it's it, he had um some he had childhood tutors who were very learned Jesuits. So his his family remained Catholic even after his father's execution and um uh he had um a Jesuit tutor um uh who who first taught him theology and then this amazing access to to um to people from a very early age so by his early teens. Um he's riding from the family home in um in what was then Buckinghamshire. Um uh and um uh, to a place called Great Linford, which uh, where the rector was a very interesting man called Richard Napier, who was a priest, but also one of the great chemical physicians of the time. And he gave the young Digby tuition in alchemy and astrology and sort of opened up um, the cosmos to him, and the sort of secrets of the natural world, um, and then by his mid-teens he was at Oxford studying a similarly um, um, esoteric range of topics with an extraordinary man called Thomas Allen, who was one of the great Catholic book collectors and, and mathematicians of the age. So, from his from his teens, we can see him having this incredible set of contacts with um, w- uh, with this whole range of human learning. Um, so it's so it's an incredibly uh, sort of densely packed and eventful childhood. From this background, you
4: mentioned that he was involved in this naval battle. How did he end up there from, from these beginnings?
3: Well, um, he, he sort of gets gradually drawn into the um, forefront of, of English and European political life. He travels through France and Italy... Um, as a uh, as a younger man so after he leaves oxford he he goes through um through france and um according to a story he later tells um i'm i'm so i i, I would love to believe this but i can't quite bring myself to he's um he uh has to sort of deal with an attempt by the Queen Regent of France, Maria de' Medici, to seduce him. She's very taken with him when she sees him dancing at the court. So he effectively fakes his own death and runs away to Italy um, and spends two years there um, continuing to, to read and involve himself in sort of learned academies. It's a very interesting time to be in Italy because it's around the time that Galileo is at the height of his power. So he's, he, at this stage, he's still really um, filling his brain with whatever he can find. But then he gets summoned to Madrid, uh, by his powerful relative, um, John Digby, uh, the Earl of Bristol, um, and arrives there just around the time that, Charles, that, that the future Charles I, the Prince of Wales, arrives in Madrid in disguise on this amazing escapade um, to, um, uh, to try and, and uh, secure his marriage to the Spanish princess. So suddenly he finds himself not this kind of outcast um, son of a traitor, but someone who's mixing with these um, figures from high politics. Um, and when he returns to England, In 1623, things have changed dramatically. The marriage negotiations with Spain break down. Um, Suddenly, instead of a Spanish marriage, there's a Spanish war. Uh, So um, England uh, um, go to war with Spain, and then amazingly, quite quickly, go to war with France as well. So they find themselves at war with the two great powers of Western Europe at the same time. At this point, um, he he gets knighted for his services to Charles in Madrid and is quite close to him at this stage. But he's still looking for an opportunity to do something grand. He's he's achieved things. He's done quite well for himself, given the disadvantages he has to overcome. But he he feels like he needs to do something to really secure his standing in the world. And um, one of the things that's happening at this time as part of these wars is that that Charles, who's king by by 1625, starts to give permission to lots of English ships to... um, uh, carry out a privateering war against the French and the Spanish. So so this is something that happened under Elizabeth during the earlier Spanish war, where ships would effectively be given permission to attack any ship uh, that was from Spain, even if it's a merchant ship, on the basis that, there are, that, that that's a legitimate act of war. And what this led to in practice was this kind of free-for-all, where if you pretended to think that a ship was carrying some Spanish goods, you could rip off the entire cargo and justify it as a piece of war. So it's, it's, it's a sort of free-for-all. But Digby is the one person I think that, you know there are various people sailing off and doing this kind of thing, but he's the one person who really um, sort of glimpses the incredible opportunity that, that this offers to him. Uh, he he fits out a privateering um, vessel, two vessels, um, gets the backing from some London merchants, and off he sails towards the Mediterranean to to, to, to join this um, this this war. Um, but what I think is unique about him is that for him, the Mediterranean is lots of things at once. It's on the one hand a chance to um, to uh, perform great feats of heroism, to uh, to join this battle, to, to to prove himself as an English hero and a patriot, um, sort of, and and again overcome um, his father's um, dangerous memory. But it's more than that for him. It's also a chance to go to this incredible region of the world, which is a place populated by all sorts of different peoples, by an incredible mixture of languages and religions. Uh, it's the place where the great stories of, of ancient history were set, both the stories of the Bible and the stories of um, the Greeks and Romans. In some ways, you know, he's following in the footsteps of figures like Odysseus and, and Aeneas, who were the, the sort of um, original Mediterranean wanderers in his mind. So he's taking advantage of a political... Of a particular set of political circumstances, but giving it a completely unique spin. Mm.
4: And so during this one year, he did some extraordinary things. He freed slaves, he gathered up uh, a kind of treasures almost, I suppose, didn't he?
3: That's right. Yes, yeah. so um uh, he uh, the first thing that happened unfortunately is his his crew began to fall terribly ill. Um uh, it's very common uh, um on ships at the time with everybody packed together and the sources of um illness and infection still um very poorly understood. So he has to find a port and and he chooses um, very daringly and strikingly to to go to Algiers, which is associated at the time with with piracy it 's somewhere that most English captains would try desperately to keep away from and Digby sails blithely into the port and um manages to sort of ingratiate himself with the local rulers and spends an incredible few weeks there um, He buys arabic manuscripts he he 's one of the only uh, in fact he 's the only uh English traveller from the time that I've been able to find who actually meets and talks with um, Muslim women in Algiers, which is a very unusual thing to do. He manages to talk his way into a household and claims that he meets a family of Muslim women who have two thumbs on one of their hands as a sort of hereditary trait. He writes about this later when he's interested in, in um, the way characteristics are passed on. So he's doing still an amazing range of things. He tries out the steam baths. Uh, but at the end of it, he he manages to negotiate the the freedom of several dozen English slaves, which again, he's partly doing um, because it's a good thing to do and partly because he knows that it's something likely to make him very popular at home because the English government were, were failing totally to actually uh, do anything systematic to free English people who were who were taken into slavery there um, so Algiers is the first great event and he's and it, it's the first sort of sign that he is really making his mark on this voyage um, but after that he sails further eastward all the way to the easternmost point of the Mediterranean and that's when he fights this this amazing um, sea battle with the Venetian ships uh, who were known to be the most fierce and uh, large and well manned uh, vessels in the Mediterranean called galleasses. He he engages them in combat at the uh, um, at a Turkish port that was known to the English as Scanderoon. Um and he wins. He manages to take them by surprise despite being um, uh, outnumbered and, and, and outgunned, and he manages to 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 defeat these ships and carry away some French uh, vessels that that um, that are at the port. Um and then as you say he um he goes from there to some uh, uh pretty sustained fevery in the Greek islands when he goes to um uh, especially to a place called delos and um purloins um an impressive set of classical statues and again he's partly doing this for his own artistic interest. He's fascinated by the statues and he writes in beautiful detail about the the marble work and the way you can sort of see the fine points of the sinews and the flesh rendered in the marble. So it's partly his own love of art, but it's partly that he knows that there's a, there's a sort of moment in the English court when various people, including Charles I himself, are increasingly fascinated by statues from this part of the world. So he knows that when he goes back, these will be very useful as, as gifts and or bribes um, uh, to improve his standing in the English court. So he's all the way through, I think, he's an he's a extraordinary mixture of very calculated and opportunistic. He knows exactly what he's doing and has an agenda. But at the same time, as I said, incredibly sort of open to the, to the textures and the details and the novel experiences of this part of the world. And for him, those two things really go hand in hand. Are there any other personal qualities that you think helped him? I think he was um, a brilliant storyteller. I think this is one of the things that uh, – it, it's very much connected, I think, to, to this sense that he's making sense of himself and his place in the world as he goes. He's He feels, I think, that the Mediterranean is a place where one can go and and write one's own story, that it's a place where rather than being the victim of the gossip and the insinuations of others, you can actually – you know, uh, seize your life by the scruff of the neck, as it were, and and um, and and forge a much more powerful version of it for yourself. And and I think the storytelling comes through quite literally. So um, one of the uh, one of the other remarkable things he does on during this year, in August of sixteen twenty eight, he stops on another Greek island, um, the island of Milos, which is where the Venus de Milo would would later be found, and he um and he sort of sequesters himself away for a week and and writes. Effectively, an autobiography of his life up to that point. Um, but it's not a autobiography as we would recognise it. It's told in the form of a romance, that is to say, um, a story of heroism and 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 adventure and um, and magicians and seducers and 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 obstacles overcome. Uh, so he so he's got a very literal storytelling um, capacity. But it's coming through all the time as well. I think in the way you know in the way that he manages to talk his way into Algiers. I mean, it's completely unprecedented to do this. You know, it's amazing that he manages sheerly through personal charm to um, to sort of secure a a kind of temporary uh, peace, a temporary accord between England and and Algiers. It comes through in all the letters he sends home while he's sailing. Um, He's constantly um, sending letters home to remind people of what he's doing and and of, uh, of his heroic acts. And it's this ability, I think, not to... Not to separate in a sense life and literature or life and 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 stories, but rather to see them as totally bound up with one another and and to, and to um, and to see the telling of stories as something you do with your life even as you're in the midst of living it that's a really um, extraordinary characteristic of his I think um
4: he also had quite a eventful personal life didn't he uh, what what were the key moments in that I suppose
3: he did well um, the other crucial um, Thing that happens to him in his early life, I you know having talked quite a lot about his uh, about his father and the influence of his father's reputation. The other thing that happens to him in early life is that um, he falls in love uh, as a very young man with um, with a woman who uh, lives quite near to his family home and is also from a from a Catholic family. She's called Venetia Stanley, and uh, and this is a this really goes on to be, I think, one of the greatest um, and ultimately most tragic love stories of the 17th century. Um, They, uh, they too have sort of obstacles to overcome in the early parts of their relationship because Digby's mother is very, very opposed to it, particularly because um, effectively although Venetia is from a from a very uh, noble Catholic family she's she's unfortunately extremely poor and in the aftermath of Digby's father's death um, his mother feels that he needs to make a good match in order to secure the family's future but Digby won't hear of it and um, but it means that the early years of their marriage he uh, they, they keep getting separated when he travels into Europe when he um when he goes to Oxford um, she must she unfortunately believes him to have died uh, when he's in Italy and so uh, this is the version of it that he later tells that that, that she then becomes betrothed to another nobleman but what happens unfortunately is as she's drawn into um london court life while he's away she starts to to attract more and more rumors and and forms of gossip about her conduct and of course we can't uh, know whether they were based in fact um some of them may have been but uh she she, she becomes known as a as a famous beauty and courtesan, this is what John Aubrey calls her um, when he's when he's writing a later uh, sort of mini biography of her, and she's rumored even to have had a child with um, with the Earl of Dorset, which is certainly not true, but it shows you the kinds of things people were saying, and so Digby's um, later attempts to. Uh, to to tell these stories and to and to re- and to replace the negative versions of of what he might be or be seen to be with more compelling and powerful positive versions are also very much attempts to free Venetia um, from this um, from this sort of. Uh, miasma of gossip within which she's having to live her life, and so they they get secretly married in 1625, uh, and by the time he's leaving for the Mediterranean two years later, their second child has just been born. So he's also a man, you know, a young man at this uh, crucial and quite scary point in his life, where he has this 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 growing set of responsibilities, and also this feeling that um that he's made a marriage to a woman whom he loves, but 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 that actually uh, might serve only. F- to make his position in the world more precarious and so he's very concerned with her throughout his time away um he does write letters back to her he also um in some ways the the romance that he writes on me the loose fantasies is very much the story of their love that's the dominant part of it really is the way that they have overcome everything placed in their way and 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 managed to retain this kind of pure and beautiful um love for one another uh, unfortunately, that's a part of his life that has a very um, sad ending because Venetia then dies young in her sleep um, in May 1633, so about four years after he comes back. And um, uh, and that that becomes another sort of crucial and defining uh, moment in his life. Um, but even then, I think the way he responds to her death, which is to mourn very publicly and very passionately and to write um to sort of write avidly and to have his famous friends like ben johnson and Anthony van Dyck uh, write about and paint her in some ways i think he is also drawing on the things that, on the kinds of things that he did on his mediterranean voyage which was the point at which he really became convinced uh, that he wanted to live a life that was sort of woven through with art and literature in this way and that was the way he was going to make sense of himself and of her mm. what was the thing that surprised you the most while you were writing this book um, I think what surprised me the most was uh well i I think it was those moments at which I would feel as if I was really getting to know Kenelm and could really understand him and see the world through his eyes and see where he was coming from, and then I would suddenly come across um, an aspect of his character or something that he was interested in that just seemed so wildly implausible and arcane and obviously in a sense silly and wrong um, that and one of the thrilling things about it has been in a sense sort of teaching myself. Why that's a, um, an unfair response. That there are things that seem to me um, to be obviously old-fashioned or outdated, and, and it's really helped me to understand why he cared about them so much. And so that's partly things that um, which I've already mentioned, like alchemy and astrology, uh, that seem very outdated and, and sort of superstitious and magical to us. But for him, they were completely bound up with modern, with, with very sort of pressing modern questions in science and philosophy. So one of his most famous. Um, One of his most famous claims was that he had been entrusted with the secret of something called the powder of sympathy, which allowed him, he said, to cure a wound. If somebody was wounded, he claimed, he could cure their wound, not by touching or in any way treating the wound itself, but by treating the weapon with which the wound had been inflicted. And he claimed that the wound would then be sort of cured across the room by this kind of sympathy sympathetic magic but but the thing is for him it really isn't sympathetic magic there's an account that he works out for this which is all about the movement of atoms and it's actually drawing on descartes and much more recent philosophical writing so for him it's not about magic it's about working out how the parts of the world might be connected to one another and for him it's no more mysterious well it's it's only as mysterious and strange as things like magnetism which again no one really understood in this period um and so for me it's about it's, it, I think what, I've, what surprised me the most is this sense that um, you can uh, look at almost anything, almost any historical phenomenon, no matter how strange or alien it might seem, and and understand something about the reason that it made sense to that person in that time, the reason that these things might be uh, viable and exciting and rich ways of approaching the world.
4: Um, if you could somehow travel back to this period and ask him a question, then, what what would you
3: ask? Um that's a great question. Uh Hmm. It, I think it, that it would be hard to resist asking him some quite specific questions that he would probably refuse to answer. So I'd want to know if Maria de' Medici really tried to seduce him or if he just made the whole thing up because it was such a wonderful story. So there are certain things that I've found so tantalizing because I desperately want them to be true. And yet I can't quite bring myself <laughs> to, eat, no matter how sympathetic I become, I still see them as uh, as sort of... Um, uh as wonderful stories i suppose rather than rather than things uh that could that could possibly um uh really have happened um the other thing i'd mention is that one of the things that digby did after he came back from his uh from his voyage um about a year after his return he became a protestant so he he, he converted and abandoned the religion for which his father had died uh and about five years later after after venetia's death venetia remained a catholic and digby um reconverted following her death and became a catholic again and um the the few people who've written about digby before me tend when they consider this part of his life to assume that it was just um insubstantial that he was just doing it for for ambition because um he wanted an official role in the, in the English government and you couldn't, you know, have one without swearing allegiance to the King. And therefore, um, you couldn't do it as a Catholic. And so, whereas I'm, I'm not convinced actually, my, my feeling about that is that he was someone with a much more, um, open and sort of supple set of religious beliefs and general, um, convictions. And that, and, and my feeling is that that was actually inspired not by ambition, but, not, but in part by what he'd seen in the Mediterranean, where he'd been in this world where you could encounter um, these incredible mixtures of religious culture sitting side by side. Not, you know, not always getting along, sometimes clashing violently, but also finding ways to to coexist and to interact. Um, places like Algiers and some of the Greek islands he stopped on with these incredible mixtures of different forms of Christianity and Islam and Judaism, sort of muddling along in really interesting ways side by side. And um, and and I feel like Digby's own religious. Uh, changes might actually have a lot to do with that and to his, attra- his attempt that ultimately failed to find a form of religion for himself that might give him some of that so I'd love to ask him about that really, I'd love to ask him you know, did you really mean it was that a deep and substantial change um, or was it um, just something you did because it felt like the best and most practical idea at the time What would you say that his greatest legacy was if you had to choose just one thing His greatest legacy Um I'll give, well, if it's okay, I'll give us quite specific and a quite general answer to that. Um, the specific one, because it, again, it's an interesting a- example of how, of how uh, really important ideas can emerge from, um, from surprising places, is that um, one of the things Digby did at the very end of his life, when he returned to England um, after the restoration of Charles II, he'd lived a, a, um, a lot of his later life in exile in Paris, um, having been a very uh, great supporter of the king during the civil wars. He had to go into exile. And and because he was very involved in science and alchemy and various kinds of practical um activity, he was one of the first people to be elected as a fellow of the Royal Society, which was founded in that period. And in fact, he delivered a paper before the um, the, the nascent Royal Society, which became the first. Um, publication that they ever officially sponsored so, he, so his is the first official paper of this great scientific institution which is quite striking and it's a paper on the vegetation of plants um, and again it's an amazing mixture of what seems to us um, just deeply implausible and um, some really very prescient things so he claims for example in that in that work that, that he's found out a way of resurrecting crayfish from their ashes he believes that he can burn them into ash and then bring them back to life uh, in a tank of water which again seems pretty um pretty bizarre to us uh, although there, there, there is a reason for him to believe that which I, which I won't go into but um he he also in this work ventures the f- he is the first person ever to suggest that plants take in sustenance from the air around them so there's a very very early and somewhat primitive attempt to claim what we you know what we would understand today as photosynthesis and so it's very interesting that that he's that he's able to glimpse something in, you know through these attempts to think about these sympathetic connections that exist between all different kinds of creature and being in the world um, which again seems in some ways to us to belong more to the world of magic he's actually able to make this incredible um scientific breakthrough and and push um uh, future scientific research in a really important direction Lot, lots of people read this paper and respond to it so that's a really interesting uh, specific legacy um but i think more generally i think you know um i think we're returning today to a world in which um people are really interested in in Different kinds of polymaths, people from the past and from the present who are who refuse to stay within any of the particular boxes or categories that 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 their society seems to offer, and um, and you know we hear a lot today. I think about you know the the fact that people might have many careers in the course of a lifetime. Um, I think we uh, we're increasingly inclined to um, to. Uh, listen to people who are expert in 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 many fields and might um have insights that, that that are harder to uh uh to find if you're kind of very much contained within one um within one box and so i think in some ways digby's um the sort of breadth of digby's interest makes him uh a strange and, and anomalous figure but there's Paradoxically, something very, very modern about that to me. Very, uh, very modern about his attempt to bring different kinds of knowledge together and into close contact with one another, and see um, what they uh, um, have to offer one another and what they have to offer us.
4: Are there any other interests that he had that you think are particularly significant?
3: Well, I think one of the um, one of the things that stands out, and that I've in, and that I've, I've increasingly actually come to see as a sort of key to understanding the ways that his interests relate to one another, um, is that he was an avid cook. Uh, he was, a very, and in fact, um, a few years after his death, um, his sort of lab assistant, a man called George Hartman, actually published um, a, a a book of Digby's recipes, an incredibly interesting cookery book uh, that that includes some wonderful um, and and surprising recipes. Lots of them drawn from his own travels. So he writes um, about things like um, a recipe for. Pan cotto, which is cooked bread, uh, the way the cardinals in Rome make it. Uh, I'm not convinced cardinals ever made their own breakfast, but it's quite, an, but it's quite a nice idea. Um, and it also has a recipe for tea with eggs from China, brought by a Jesuit missionary from China, which is um, actually the first Chinese recipe ever to appear in England. This is in the 1660s, which is kind of wonderfully early. Um, but actually for Digby, the, again, this, what I, f- I think when I first came across this, I just thought, oh, how curious, he, he liked cooking and moved on from it in my head. And the more I've come back to it, the more I felt like that—that's not—that—that—that's uh, not a sufficiently um, good response. You know, that this was for him something that was actually just as much a way of understanding the world and the things in the world as um, as any of the philosophical or scientific words that he produced. He was very interested in the particular qualities of ingredients and material substances, and you know, again, it's a—it's a very interesting in term, um, thing in terms of his strange modernity in that, in some ways again this would seem like a very like a sort of outdated model or an old-fashioned model where where um where cooking and alchemy and things connect but actually you know there's so much said today about uh molecular gastronomy and the role of science in the kitchen as if it's this kind of terribly modern uh slightly pretentious innovation and actually it's not at all it's a return to an earlier State of affairs where there really was no strict division between cooking um, and chemistry, and that these things could happen in the same places uh, and using often using the same equipments and the same and the same ingredients. So, so for him, in some sense, I think when he's um, you know whipping eggs or uh, concocting a syllabub or um, making any of the various, I'm afraid to us pretty disgusting sounding recipes for you know sugared mutton pastries and this sort of thing. Um, but it, but it is for him also a way of making sense of um the the everyday things in the world around us and the way we can transform their man be transformed by them um and so we actually see a lot i think of his mind at work um in his cooking again i think one of the one of the amazing things uh, and one of the things that drew me to his mediterranean voyage in particular is that he it's very clear from his from the writings that he left that this was also a chance for him to try some amazing food um he's just about one of the only English people from the time who feasted with the pirate chiefs of Algiers. I mean, it's quite an incredible idea that this, you know, in the 17th century, you might find yourself in a Algerian banking, uh, in an Algerian banqueting hall. And then later, he, uh, in a very different setting, he stops, after he's won the battle at Skanderun. he stops nearby on the Turkish coast and eats sort of around a campfire with the local Turkish people, and writes in his journal very beautifully about um, the food they ate, which included this paper-thin bread that he was very struck by. So he eats in the grandest way and he eats in the most humble way and he's again, this is a chance for him to expand his experiences to, um, to find new forms of sensation that he'll later um, incorporate into his kind of developing sense of who he is and where he wants to go with his life.
2: That was Joe Muschenska. A Stain in the Blood, The Remarkable Voyage of Sir Ken Elm Digby is out now in the UK, published by Heinemann. And in the US it is available for the Kindle and look out for a review of Joe's book in the June edition of BBC History magazine. Meanwhile, it's our May edition that's currently on sale. Inside this month's magazine, we have articles on Thomas More, the Battle of Jutland, the Wars of the Roses, and unusual historical underwear, among other things. You can get hold of our May issue now in all good news agents in the UK, and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And just before we go, here are a couple of messages that have been sent in by listeners to the podcast at historyextra.com email address. RF Gillum from Maryland writes, I just discovered these podcasts and threw them the magazine. Greatly enjoy the interviews on the history of democracy and 17th century genius. I'll keep listening. Meanwhile, we heard from Pat Rogers in Sydney, who says, What an excellent interview with Dean Allen on his cricket history book. He has uncovered a remarkable story of James Logan in such a scholarly manner. Well done for publicising this so well. Well, thanks for your feedback, and if you missed either of these episodes, they're both available to download for free from all the usual places. The episodes concerned were released on the 24th of March and the 21st of April, respectively. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be discussing a dark Victorian crime and paying a visit to the iconic sailing ship Cutty Sark. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode
4: of this podcast.